We are in Acts chapter 3 today, working our way through Acts, digging in and going in depth, uh, Acts chapters 1 through 10. And today we're in Acts chapter 3. I call this message An Idiot's Guide to the Mission of the Church. An Idiot's Guide to the Mission of the church. To me, this message, I could have titled it this. I struggled with this. I thought, man, I, this almost seems like I ought to call this message having a firm grip on the obvious. Because the, th- the points I'm going to bring out today seem obvious to me when you really read Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 2 has just happened. Uh, the Holy Spirit has come upon the church. Pastor Jeff reminded us that this, in many people's thinking, is the birth of the local church. So we're moving from a handful of followers of Jesus, committed disciples of Jesus, maybe a little bit larger group of people who are following him at a little, with a little less intensity, but this little cluster, to now the church is going to be born, and they've received this challenge from Jesus to go and make disciples of all the world. The Holy Spirit has come as promised and empowered them. And the next thing you know, this timid fisherman, Peter, who not that long ago had denied out of fear that he ever knew Jesus, is out preaching like you've never heard anybody preach before, and people are coming to Christ. And Acts chapter, th- And then the people ask the question after they hear this message of Jesus, remember this? then what should we do? How should we respond? And we said, that's still a relevant question. And we asked ourselves that question. So that's the context. That question is still in force. And now we have the birth of the church in chapter 2. And you could argue that Acts chapter 3 is the launching into ministry of the church, the launching into the mission of the church. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, Acts chapter 3. And what's the mission of the church? It's been credited to uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, a 12th century saint, this phrase that you've probably heard. He didn't say it exactly this way, but the foundation, one theory is that the phrase we're used to today, that I'm going to tell you in just a second, comes out of some thoughts by Bernard. And it's that phrase, the world, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know that phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Intention. The point there is that even when we desire to do good and desire to do the right things in the right way, the outcomes can still be negative. The outcomes can still be bad. Good intentions don't guarantee good outcomes, right? I mean, last night, last night, this is, last night uh, we went out to dinner with these missionaries that, uh, that I was telling you about, and I'm on my way home. We finished about 7.30. I'm thinking, oh, Brenda gets off work. She's been working 12 hours at the hospital. She's had a crazy day. She gets off work about now. Um, I give her a call, see what's up, because I'm coming down 101. Well, it turns out she's right behind me, about oh, half a mile behind me, coming home from the hospital, coming home from work. And she usually doesn't get a chance to eat dinner when she works a 12-hour shift. So uh, get in touch with Brenda, and I said, how you did you bring me any pizza? Uh, no, it got, it got eaten up. I said, would you, would you, I know, I'll take you to a fancy dinner. Do you want to meet me at Taco Bell? And she, because you know Taco Bell, by the, by the way, was voted America's favorite Mexican restaurant. Which, it was, it really was, which goes to show you some people should not have the right to vote. You know, that, 
Everybody knows that's me, Pueblo. That's so. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm heading down the road. She says, I don't want Taco Bell. Okay, well, how about one of your favorite burger places? She goes, you know what I really just want? What? Burger King. Okay, you want me to meet you at Burger King? Where, which one? She goes, there's only one. Oh, you're just in time. I said, I'm just coming up on the Nave exit. So I'll get off. Tell me what you want. She tells me what you want. I'll get there ahead of you, and I'll order it. And then by the time you get there, <coughs> it'll be perfect. It'll be nice and hot. You won't have to wait in line. You can just go sit down, and I will bring your burger and fries and Coke over to you, and you won't have to wait till after you order. Because I'm thinking, you know, I'm a promise keepers kind of guy. I want to serve my wife. I love her. She's good to me. If it were the other way around, she'd have cooked me something for dinner. So... <laughs> I get off because the best intentions don't guarantee good outcomes, do they? I get off. You know that exit on Nave, if you're coming south on 101, you get off and then you have to go over to the other side so you don't turn right You like you're going to Hamilton. You go straight and you go underneath and you come and zip back around and, and then you're coming right down and you come to this dead end and you want to turn right at the dead end. So I did. I came to the dead end. It's dark. I turn right, and I think, oh, no, I have to get in the other lane. Otherwise, it's going to put me back on 101 North. And so I'm going, to, I'm going down, and I don't want to be late. If I go on 101 North, I won't be able to get there in time to order it ahead so that when she gets there, it'll be just right and just ready for her. So they have those cones kind of set up there. And, the, and then there's a break. There's a, there's a gap. And so my simple mind says, gaps are for changing lanes. <laughs> oh, darn, I'm in the wrong lane. So I, it's dark. There's no one there. I look, no one there. I get over to the other lane, and I go with the best of intentions to get to Burger King. And I pull into the Burger King parking lot. And so did my friend, Officer Jones. Obviously, he was hungry, too, and he wanted a piece of me for dinner, and so the lights are on behind me. I saw, before I pulled in, I thought, oh, I wonder if somebody's in trouble, you know, and so I pull and I park. He pulls in, and I, I park, and he goes past me, and I think, man, they're here at Burger King. I hope it's not prop. and so I get out of my car, and he stops. He comes walking toward me, looking at me, and I'm looking around. He's not looking at anyone else. I said, well, well are you on me? He goes, yes, I'm on you. Well, what did I do wrong? You, you're not allowed to make a lane change back towards a solid white line. There's a break in the cones. It's a solid white line. If you want to, you can go back and look. Here's my point. I had the best of intentions changing lanes. I just wanted to bless my wife. And he still blessed me with a ticket. I waited until I got the ticket before I gave him the lecture. I, I said, you know, back in the day, I'm old school. And back in the day before you guys were using tickets to fund yourself. This would have been a warning, not a ticket. And he said, well, welcome to 2018, sir. <laughs> But the best of intentions don't guarantee anything. You can mean well, but it doesn't mean you're going to have a good outcome. That's a funny story for you, not for me. <laughs> but you know, that phrase of Bernard, it's kind of sad when we think about it because some of the best examples of that phrase are found in the church. 
when the church is on mission. Because you, we can seek to do the mission of God, but if we do it the right thing in the wrong way, if we do it with the best of intentions, but the means by which we do the mission of Christ, the tactics we use, the attitudes we bring, the best of intentions don't guarantee good positive outcomes. My wife, Brenda, was reading, just finished this book. Some of you probably read it. I mean, I know some of you have read it by Jamie Wright called The World's Worst Missionary. I've mentioned this book, and I'll, I'll tell you, you're going to take that as an endorsement. Actually, it is an endorsement, but this, this gal apparently used to be a sailor because she cusses like a sailor. There's not delicate language in this book. It's pretty raw. It's the rawest of language, okay? But it's a Christian book. So if you can handle that, read it. If not, don't read it. But listen to this from uh, her webpage. Best of intentions don't guarantee great outcomes. About 100 years ago, in 2007, I boldly marched out of the suburbs and into the world of Christian missions, wide-eyed and altruistic as, as heck, as, as frick. Yes, the F-bomb right there. And when I took on the little, <clears throat> when I took on the title of missionary, I earnestly thought I'd been called by God to go somewhere and do something amazing in a faraway land. And though I was completely unfamiliar with the language, completely unfamiliar with the culture and the spiritual climate of Costa Rica, I sincerely thought I would be able to make a difference there. This was in part because I believed the lies I had been told by the Christian missions machine that all I had to do was show up no matter how unprepared or ill-equipped, and God would do the rest. And that if only one person was helped, encouraged, or blessed in some way, then it would all be worth it. What I didn't know, she said, as I snaked my way through Costa Rican customs and immigration to start a new life in Latin America, was that I was diving headlong into a broken system. The best of intentions don't guarantee the great outcomes, and that's certainly true when it comes to the Christian mission we're going to learn about in just a second. I had no idea that I'd fully committed to a billion-dollar black hole, endlessly fed by good intentions, gross entitlement, and an unchecked stream of white savior colonial BS, except she doesn't abbreviate. Abbreviate. I didn't take, it didn't take long for me to wonder if maybe it's not enough to just show up and let God do the rest, or to consider that maybe spending billions to send scores of wealthy Americans into impoverished communities to bless just one person isn't actually worth it. Now, this is her take, but there's some truth to it, and there's at least a warning, a caution to the church when we're doing Christian Mission, missional intentions that are pure don't necessarily guarantee outcomes that are blessed. Not necessarily. And Acts 3 is about the church on mission, but it's not about just doing Christian mission. Acts chapter 3 is about doing God's mission. And not just doing God's mission, but doing God's mission the right way. I said I could have entitled this message a firm grip on the obvious, but I entitled it instead, An Idiot's Guide 
to missions in the church. And I want to just look through Acts chapter 3 and point out some things that we can learn there that to me are obvious, but maybe they're good reminders about this mission. The first one comes in the first 10 verses. Peter and John were going up to the... Remember what's just happened, Acts chapter 2, they've just had Pentecost experience. The Holy Spirit's come upon them, great power, clear message presented. People are asking, oh my gosh, we're cut to the quick, what should we do? And Peter tells them, repent and be saved, follow Jesus. And then after that, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So here's something to grab onto from that one verse. They're doing what they would normally do during that hour because it was the hour of prayer. And a certain man had been lame from his mother's womb and was being carried along, whom they used to, used to set down every single day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. So you, the author means to say, Luke means to tell us, this is what Peter and John would normally do. And just about every day when they would take that route, they would see what this, what this needy person's family normally did. There's nothing abnormal happening here. This is like clockwork. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms, which he would normally do. This wasn't the first time they had heard it. This wasn't the first time they'd seen it. It wasn't the first time he'd been there asking for it. And Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze upon him and said, Hold on, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them which would have normally happened. But Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but I'll give you what I do possess. In the name of Jesus, Nazareth, walk up, stand up and walk. And seizing him by the right hand, which he would not have normally done, Seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately uh, his ankles were strengthened, and he began to walk. In fact, he began to leap, and he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, which he would not normally have done, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, which was a new thing for them to see. And they were taking note of him as being one who used to sit every day at the beautiful gate of the temple and beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement what had happened to him. Here's the first obvious thing to me when we're thinking about doing God's mission and doing it the right way. Here's what we can take away this morning, something I think is pretty obvious. It's not going to be new news to you, but when it comes to the church doing the mission of God, the mission of God is part, it happens while we're just living our daily lives. It was the hour of prayer. We always go to the hour of prayer. It was the path to the temple. This is the same path we always take to the temple. Why are you taking this path to the temple at this hour? Because it's our habit. We normally go. Why are you on uh, the bus this morning going to work? I always take the bus to work. Which bus? The eight o'clock bus. Every day. Which ferry do you take? I always take this ferry and I always sit here. You know, sometimes I sit outside and sometimes I sit inside. It depends on the weather, but this is what I normally do. The mission of the church happens. It's part of our daily walk. We used to have this exercise when I was coaching football, this phrase we used to tell linemen who were blocking for a pass. Head on a swivel. 
That means when you're dropping back to block for a pass, your head's on a swivel. You're looking all the time for who broke through on a blitz. And you might need to come over here because your head's on a swivel. You're not going to be surprised. You're looking around all the time while you're blocking. And head on a swivel while we're living our daily lives is the point here. En route to do what I would normally do and what everybody would normally do, mission of the church happens. Mission of the church is not something that's a component in life. Your life Your life is not designed to be, your daily life doesn't just include the mission. Daily life, when we're doing God's mission the right way, daily life is the mission. Do you get that? While we're living our daily life. I'm going to Safeway to get milk. While I'm going to Safeway to get milk, my head's on a swivel. And as I'm walking down the aisle, I'm not thinking necessarily, now where should I stand on the end cap? Which end cap should I stand on to preach? I'm going to get milk. But I'm, my life is the mission. I'm constantly aware of the beggar that might have been sitting there every day that needs help, that I, and I need to speak for Jesus or represent Jesus. Life is about choices. And the kingdom of God is about entering the kingdom by choices, by moments, being ready at any time to respond in a way that honors Christ. You know, in Matthew 28, they get the, the, the disciples get the great commission from Jesus. Listen to it. It says, Jesus says to them, Go, uh, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. Do so you know that that could and maybe should be translated differently? In the original language, it's very difficult to translate that because those are participial phrases. They're I-N-G words. They're, they're verbal in their force. I mean, that, some people translate that and argue that it should not be translated as a, sort of a static, solid verb, go, because it doesn't say go. You know what it actually says when you're reading? It says going, be making disciples. And some would say that should be tra- translated as you go, as you're in the process of going, wherever you're going, be involved in ministry that that may even be the force that Jesus was trying to offer. So, mission is part of daily life. Second point that I think is obvious, this comes from the next handful of verses. Mission is not just part of our daily life. Mission is centered on Jesus. Now, you would say, duh, you went to seminary to learn that in a sermon? Except it's interesting how quickly the church can not lose official focus of that, but to lose functional focus of the fact that Jesus is at the center of our mission. Look at verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them, uh, to the so-called portico of Solomon, full of abasement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, People of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why, here's the focus, why do you gaze at us? As if by our own power and our own piety we made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified uh, his servant Jesus. 
The one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And on this basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of all. Man, don't be asking for our autographs. Jesus is the center of everything, you see. Don't marvel at me if I find the strength to forgive somebody that has really deeply wounded me. I wanted to punch somebody who wounded me. But Jesus is working inside me saying, no, not this time, Greco. Choose the kingdom of God instead. You don't know the prayers that were going on inside of this weak vessel saying, God, I so much want to just kick them right in the shins for that pain they caused me or the pain they caused somebody I love. And I don't have the ability to respond the way you want me to respond, so you've got to put it in me. I mean, right now you've got to put it in me. Come and put it in me. Come, Holy Spirit, and dominate me. Take over me. Because if you let me go unchecked, if you just cut me loose, just cut the leash, just say, do whatever you want to, Art, bad things are going to happen. Most of them to me. It's Jesus that's responsible. It's Jesus that's the focus. And I'm especially exercised about this from the perspective of a pastor because pastors... Are, we're, we're minor celebrities. We're, we're known more maybe than the average person in the church. And it's so easy as a pastor or even as a well-known Christian or even as somebody who's lifted up in the Christian community to sort of grab onto that celebrity status and forget who's actually responsible and who's at the center of the mission of the church. It's Jesus. I mean... His heart, he's the why of the mission all the time. He's the center of it. He's the why. He's the reason. Because the heart of Christ breaks when he sees people experiencing anything less than the abundant life. And he's the reason we even do mission at all. And Jesus says, I, it breaks my heart when I see a human being that I crafted, that I oversaw, that I know very well. Whether they know me or not, it breaks my heart to see anybody experiencing anything less than the abundant life I long for all of you to live. And Jesus said, what about the abundant life? Where is it found? He said that that is found in him. In John 14, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the the." the Disciples are saying, where are you going? How do we know how to get there where you're going? We don't even know where you're going. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I so long for you to know the love of the Father and to experience it as more than just a fact you never get to taste. John 10, he talks about the thief, this juxtaposition he sets up. The thief comes to your life only to kill and steal and destroy. The thief has a party when your life stinks, when you have less than you deserve. But I came in strong contrast to that, to give you life, and not just to give you life, the kind that, you know, you take a breath, you're alive, but to give you this full, crazy, you never imagined how wonderful it could be, abundant life. 
Jesus is the why of the mission. And the mission, it's good to remember, is not centered on our fancy competencies or our shining accomplishments. We talk about Marin Covenant being a great church. Well, that's our perspective. But our mission is dependent upon how clean our windows are or how nice our lobby is or how well-educated our pastors are or how well-invested our members are in a Seeds for Deeds project. Our mission is centered on Jesus and the fact that he takes broken, embarrassing, pitiful vessels and breathes life into them and transforms them. Man, we, we do mission of God because Christ transformed us. And maybe our greatest message is, <laughs> man, I'm a transformed dude. You don't want the old version. The new version is squirrely enough. But Jesus changed me. Jesus made me walk. Jesus changed and is changing my heart. Jesus gave me new lenses through which to see people in the world. It's all about Jesus. That's why in Philippians 3, Paul, who was very accomplished and quite well-educated, says, oh, that's cool. If, you're gonna, if anybody's going to boast in their accomplishments, it's me. And I can measure it, I can prove it, I can show it to you. But he said, I consider all of my accomplished to be, and then John takes on sort of the habits of Jamie Wright. He, he says, I, I considered all of my great pedigree to be like feces, except he used a rougher term. When compared to the surpassing knowledge of Jesus and serving Christ. That's why if you look back in Acts chapter 2, to last week's passage that Pastor Ben brought to us, you'll notice in verse 47 that the author goes out of his way to say, they did all this ministry and the Lord added to their number. Peter didn't add to their number. John didn't add to their number. The whole church didn't even add to their number. The Lord added to the number. Look, the mission is a part of daily life and the mission is centered on Jesus. The mission isn't feeding the hungry. The mission isn't housing the homeless. The mission is introducing people to Jesus and provision he longs to have for each of them, the provision he longs for each of them to experience and then watching as he unfolds them into his collection of followers. The mission is centered on Jesus. And finally, this point. The mission is part of daily life. It's centered on Jesus. And the mission is focused on grace. If you begin at verse 17 and read through 26, you'll encounter these verses. I just want to read the portions that I want to highlight here. So in verse 17, look for grace here. Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. That's a, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing kind of statement. When we go doing the mission of God the right way, that's kind of got to be our attitude. We remember where we've been, Remember what we've been and remember who people are that we're serving. They don't, they don't know. 
But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn around, change. Like our friend Gary Walter a few weeks ago preached. Come, don't stay over there. Come, come over here. Water's better over here. Repent, therefore, and return that your sins may be wiped away. Grace, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Grace, that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. Grace, in verse 25, after he says a little more, it is you who are the sons of the prophets. That's encouragement and grace of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed. You're destined for blessing, grace. For you first, God raised up his servant. There's God giving and showing grace. And he sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your broken ways to healthier, more righteous ways. Grace, grace, grace. The mission is focused on grace on God's understanding of human frailty and his desire to offer all frail humans a new start, new legs upon which to walk, strengthened ankles, grace. So that means if you find that your mission, as you're involved in it, jeez, ah, I'm already so far over time, is focused on condemning if that's your focus uh, you know, on correcting, then including, you've got a problem with that. If the focus is othering people, uh, where your focus is more on a person's lifestyle and beliefs than it is on the person's humanity, it's not a ministry of grace. It's not the focus of the mission of the church, regardless of your intentions. Our mission is a mission of divine grace where we display a humble dependence upon it, embrace anyone who's open to it, and remember that all people, all people are pre-qualified for it. It's a ministry of grace. Acts chapter 3. It's not about just doing any mission. It's about doing the mission of God. Now I'm telling you right now, you're going to be quite late. We're already two minutes over time, but I still want to finish by giving you a um, little assignment. In the back of your uh, seat, back, in the back, seat back, you're going to find a card. Uh, so take this card, and here's what I want you to do for the next couple of minutes, and then we'll, we'll finish. We're a church on mission. I want you to ask the Lord, put one person on my heart. One. One person on my heart for whom I can pray this prayer this week. That Lord, please cause this person to crash head on into the grace you offer. Bless this person with the life-changing experience of friendship with Jesus. Who is the one person in fact, even write that prayer down longhand if you need to, to remember that prayer. And I want you to put their name right on the top of the card and then the prayer. And then I want you to write their name also at the bottom of the card. Take 30 seconds 
discern that. Who's that name? Most of you already know somebody. Just one, though. One name. Go ahead and do that. Cause this person to crash head on into the grace you offer. Bless him or her with the life-changing experience of friendship with Jesus. Prayer is part of that mission. When we pray specific prayers for people, for the transformation of these people, it's part of us being on mission, doing God's mission, God's way. Now here's the last thing I want you to do. I want you to take that card right in the middle and rip it right in half. The top part with the prayer written on it, that's yours to keep. Clip it to your keychain, tape it to your windshield, whatever you want to do. But pray for them every day this week. Pray that prayer for them. The bottom half with their name, as the band plays this last song, I want you to get up out of your seats. And what we're doing is we're symbolically, well, actually we're really laying them at the feet of Christ, at the feet of the cross. And you come forward and you lay that card right here because you're giving them to Jesus. It's Jesus who does the work.